really excited to have Shay on in the house. Can we just acknowledge him here? Don't come up yet. Hang on. Stay there. Yeah. Welcome. Um, he's uh, in the region because he was speaking at Sylvan Lake at Frontline Church for their summer conference. And he got in touch with me um, a few months before that saying, hey, I'm going to be in the region and um, I'm around like, you want to do Sunday together? I said, absolutely. So we're so excited to have this amazing friend of this house, this amazing brother. He's the leader of Harvest International Ministries based in Pasadena, California. An amazing ministry, doing just incredible things. A ministry that we have partnered with and are walking with and being blessed by in just lots of special ways. So I want to share a few things about him. And I'm going to invite him up here again. Papa Shea, come on up. Let's welcome him again. Yep. Yeah, Thank you. good to have you. Thank you. Yeah, so um, you come from Pasadena, one of my favorite cities. I've spent some time there in fuller seminary days. And all those years I was there, we talked about this, that I, we just didn't cross paths. And then right after that, we got to know each other. So incredible. And uh, Harvest International Ministries, we're talking about something that spans into 70 nations. And you've lost count of how many affiliated ministries after 30,000. We're talking about churches all over the world. In India, in, in, in Europe, in South America, Korea, Canada, U.S. There's just so many great things going on. And uh, I've gotten to meet some of your, your key leaders. I've been down to your place and, and uh, met people from different countries, pastors from, and, and leaders from Spain and uh, Nepal and, and all kinds of places. It's just amazing to me what God has done through you. So welcome to our house again. Wow. You were here a couple of years ago. It was right smack in the middle of the end of COVID. And uh, on a Tuesday night or Wednesday night, we had a, a few people gather, about 150 people gather that night on short notice. So we are so excited that you're back. Well, thank you. Well, it's an honor. And I, I just want to qualify. We didn't plant all those churches. No. Um, what we do is we look for like a man of peace. We look for an apostle in each nation. And then we empower them, we give them resources, we lay money at their feet. And so, for example, Simon Carissa was a school teacher in Nairobi, Kenya. And um, well, we started out with around 150 churches, but since then, uh, he has planted 7,000 churches. Oh and so that's, that's why we stopped counting churches. It's hard to keep up because God's on the move globally. This is the Lord's doing as marvelous in our sight. And of course, we give him all the praise and all the glory. And so it's basically, I think, uh, the biblical uh, mandate to disciple nations. And so we are trying to do our part and uh, going to the nations. Of course, you guys are part of a great move of the Holy Spirit as well. And so it's such an honor to partner with you here in Canada. It's good to be with you. And you're a global apostolic leader, and God has given you an anointing to raise up leaders. So if you wonder what Shay does behind the scenes as he travels, he builds into leaders, uh, leaders in the church, in the marketplace, in government, wherever the kingdom is advancing. And uh, we had a great barbecue yesterday with you. It's just so fun to be with you. And uh, tell us about Sue, your wife, and uh, We've been your married uh, 44 years. Yeah. We have uh, nine grandchildren, four grandchildren, and three of the four are pastors. And uh, so my dad's a pastor, so we're talking about three generations of pastors. And the main thing is they love Jesus. So Amen. our kids love Jesus, and our grandkids are aged from uh, eight months to 12 years old. 
And so my grandson just became 12 in May, May 29th. And so we're excited about church growth. We call it church growth. Yeah. Be fruitful, you're, multiply, you're fill the to. earth. Yeah, right. And yeah. I've seen how much they love you. They come down to the front in your church at H Rock and they just love on you. Shay is the lead pastor at H Rock Church in Pasadena in a beautiful building, uh, the Ambassador Auditorium, which God helped you guys to get. Was, how many years ago was that? 2004. It, uh, it was just a miracle. Uh, the building is that valued around 38 million today. Yeah. Uh, it was 28 million in 2004. We got it for 13 million. But the amazing thing about it is that we had to raise four and a half million cash in four and a half months, and we couldn't tell the people what we we're buying. Oh, wow. I had signed a legal non-disclosure. They were giving us such a deal. They said, if this price leaks, then other people, if you can't buy, then other people ask for the same price. And if we don't give it to them, we'll go into litigation lawsuits. So you have to sign a legal document, a non-disclosure statement. And so can you imagine raising money for a church by saying, we can't tell you the price, we can't tell you the location, the name of the church. We definitely can't do a Jericho march around it seven times. Yeah. And, and so, but trust us, it's a beautiful building, but I need four and a half million dollars oh, by on. May 14th. And so that's, it may be probably the weirdest a capital campaign in the history of it the church. It broke all the rules. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, you've you, you got to show a video or a model or something, uh, but we, we couldn't do any of that. And so, but, so, but God gets the glory because it was way beyond yeah. us. It was just something that was so ridiculous. But God loves to take the foolish things to confound the wise because he gets the glory. So good, so good. I want to highlight just a couple of Shay's books. You have about 14 of them books, right? Four, 14. 14 books, yeah. I just brought a couple uh, from my library. This one on revival, Turning Our Nation Back to God Through Historic Revival. It's a great book on laying out the foundation for how revival can be entered into. And uh, then this book over here, this is one of my favorites, because it tells the story of the early days, Say Goodbye to Powerless Christianity. And uh, you can get any of Shay's books on Amazon. Uh, that's a good way to get them. Um, just go on and, and, and get yourself some summer reading and catch up on what God is doing through Shayon and his family. Uh, such a special, special friend of this house. So I want to pray for you as you get ready to preach. And can you guys just extend your hands to Papa Shay? Uh, that's what we call him, Papa Shay. Father, we thank you for this amazing servant of Jesus, this man of God, this leader of leaders. And we just bless him, Lord, as he's in this house. Thank you for what you've laid on his heart to, to give us today. And we pray, God, that we will be transformed as Shea preaches. And we bless Sue. We bless the on children and grandchildren and all of HIM. Lord, let your anointing be upon him, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, and I want to mention as well, at the end of the talk, Shay's going to come down here and pray for people. You're going to do an apostolic impartation uh, for an anointing uh, that will bless your life. So just be, be ready for that. Well, thank you. It's such an honor for me to be here. And you have an amazing pastor, also Pastor Marianne. I just love them. Uh, of course, uh, we went to the same seminary together, so Fuller Seminary and I spent uh, eight years there getting my master's and my doctorate. Normally it's a six-year program, but I was married with four kids and pastoring at the same time I was going to school, so I had to stretch it out. And so, um, But uh, I thank God for my roots. I'm here because my parents prayed me into the kingdom. So I want to encourage you parents, if your kids are prodigals, uh, I want to give you a verse, Acts 16, 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you and your family will be saved. Can I hear a 
amen this morning. And so I want you to contend because my background, even though I grew up as a pastor's kid, I did not know the Lord until I was 17 years old. And I was so insecure because I grew up in as the only, my school was an all white school in Montgomery County, Maryland. It's in the south of the United States. And um, there were no blacks, there were no other Asians. My sister and I broke the color barrier. So just imagine going to an all white school and uh, you're the only one that's different. And so I got called Chink, even though I'm not Chinese. I got called Jap, even though I'm not Japanese. Of course, the war in Vietnam started in the 60s. I'm going to school during the 60s, and I'm not Vietnamese either. So, by the way, I'm Korean. And so for those who don't know, uh, as a Korean, by the way, we can tell the difference between a Chinese, Japanese, and a Korean. Would you, would you like to have some cross-cultural... Uh, lessons on us so you could discern. I know you think we all look alike, but we, we could tell the difference. So it's really simple. If you see a rich looking Asian, they're Chinese. If you see a smart looking Asian, they're Japanese. They'll take whatever we invent and make it better. And so you have Sony, etc. But if you see a handsome looking Asian, he's Korean. So that's how you tell the difference between <laughs> Korean, Japanese. And just want to make sure that you got that straight <laughs> before I begin. No, I, I did grow up very insecure uh, because uh, just being different, wanting to be accepted by my friends. And, and even though uh, my parents read the Bible to me, quickly I forgot the Korean language. There was no kids my age. It was a university church that my dad was a pastor of. Uh, the Korean government had sent some of their top students to Washington, D.C. to learn public policy and economics. Uh, because Korea had just finished the Korean War in 53. So you're talking about ending World War II in 45 and then going to another war. So by 1953, Korea was the poorest nation, according to the UN, uh, globally. We're talking about like the average person made $25 annually. And so this is uh, an impoverished nation. Now Korea is one of the richest nations in the world. It's the 11th richest uh, nation. I don't know where Canada stands in the scale compared to the other nations. But anyway, uh, Korea, and the reason why is because a revival broke out. I really believe when God pours out his spirit, uh, we learned this in missiology at Fuller Seminary, it's called redemption and lift. Wherever the gospel goes forth, it lifts people out of poverty. Uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said in Luke 4, 18, he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. That word gospel means good news. So what's good news for a poor person? And you could talk about the cross, his death and resurrection, but even before that, the best news is that I don't have to be poor anymore. I could have food in my stomach. I could have a place to live. I could wear clothes instead of just being half naked. And so Jesus came to eradicate systemic poverty. Uh, and, uh, and so wherever the gospel has gone forth, it's amazing how it's brought redemption and lift. I mean, just think about Germany. Germany, because of the Protestant Reformation of 1517, it prospered to be the richest nation. And the reason why is because of the Protestant work ethics. When Martin Luther, one of the best things he did was translate the Latin Bible into common German. And why is that important? Because only the priests could read and no one could read unless they were really educated and they had special tutors to teach them Latin if they wanted to read the Bible. But the average person couldn't read. But once the Bible was translated, all of a sudden, everyone wanted to be motivated to read the Bible. 
And so people taught themselves common German and they became the most literate. And to this day, Germany is one of the wealthiest, the most literate nation because of Christianity. And so that's why Jesus is really serious about the big picture that we're to disciple nations. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Now please know what I'm emphasizing. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, make disciples of nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Many of you are familiar with that passage. How I many can say amen to the Great Commission? How I many know the Great Commission is not the great suggestion? It's a mandate from Jesus Christ. Every believer has to obey the Great Commission. The two commandments he's given to us is love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that's in Matthew 22, verses 37, 39. But the Great Commission, we're to disciple nations. We're to do our part. Now, it includes winning souls and discipling them, but it doesn't say that in Matthew 28. It does say that in Mark 16, that we're to preach the gospel. Uh, and These signs will follow those who believe in my name. will cast out demons. Uh, you shall lay your hands on sick. They will recover. That's in the Bible. That's Mark 16, starting in verse 17. But he is literally saying he wants us to disciple nations. Isn't that amazing that he wants us to transform nations and uh, baptizing them with, a, I believe, the Father's love, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the teachings of Jesus Christ, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so, again, we have to do our part. And, and some of you may be just giving to missions, and, and that's part of your contribution. Uh, but I'm taking it literally for myself. And uh, Pastor Sandy's doing the same thing. We're going to the nations. And that's why we started to go to the Muslim People Group in 1996 when HIM started. Uh, 2.5 million Muslims, not one Christian, not one church. And we sent a missionary couple, Americans. They learned the language. They immersed themselves in the Banjar dialect. And, um, and what they did was they started a school to teach English. And the school blew up and revival broke out. And now there's a great apostolic center. And uh, this is in Indonesia. And it's amazing how uh, revivals come to Indonesia. Uh, so much to the point that Indonesia is the largest Muslim nation in the world. Now Indonesia is 35% born again. It's stunning to see what's going on globally. God is on the move. You may not know this, but 200,000 people are getting saved every day around the world, including 35,000 people in India every day, even those a Hindu nation. 35,000 Chinese, even those a communist nation. Every day, 35,000. The church now is around 150 million strong. There are more evangelical believers than Canada and United States combined in China. And so uh, we're living in a very exciting time. But I wrote a book on revival, and I want to talk about that. I want to talk about what does revival look like? Because we talk about revival. In fact, my dad, as a Southern Baptist pastor, had revival services. And what that meant for him is that he had invited a guest speaker for the weekend, and he had some really good evangelistic service, an outside speaker. And he would preach Friday, Saturday night, and then Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night. He called that revival. But that's not revival, not from a historic perspective. Uh, it's good evangelistic meetings, and we celebrate that, right? Souls are saved, and, and all of heaven rejoices when there's one soul saved. But what is revival? I like the way Lou Engel, who's been a prophet in my life for 35 years, uh, he was asked one time, what is revival? And you have to understand, 
Lou Engel, he, he is constantly moving. He's like a, a Jewish rabbi just rocking all the time. He's, and so he said, revival. What is revival? He said, it's God's arrival. And that's a great definition. When God arrives with his manifest presence, we know God's present everywhere. He's omnipresent. But when he comes with his manifest presence. So what invites his manifest presence? Well, I want to just submit to you, we call the manifest presence glory. We sang about the glory. Uh, the Hebrew word kavod means the weighty manifest presence of God. Back in the 90s, when the Holy Spirit fell in Canada, in Toronto, I made a beeline to Toronto. I was at the Catch the Fire with my good friend John Ornott. I didn't know him at that time. Uh, but I was stuck to the floor. The glory came upon me. I couldn't walk after the first uh, weekend being with them. Literally, in order for me, thank God we were staying at the Rico Constellation Hotel, and I had to really crawl on all fours. I could not walk. I wanted to walk. I'm a pastor. I wanted to be dignified, but I could not walk. I'm crawling to the elevator, pushing the button, crawling into the elevator, pushing the button, crawling out of the elevator to my room, got my key in, and I crawled into bed, and that was my evening, literally. No hyperbole, no exaggeration. I could not walk. Why? Well, we just read about Second Chronicles chapter 5 as the temple was being dedicated and the glory filled the temple that the priests could not even stand. They could not stand. Read that yourself. The 120 priests were on the floor because the weighty manifest presence of God. When's the last time you experienced that? And so revival, but I want to give you real quickly three characteristics of history. Begins, first of all, with the church. Begins with God's people. Begins with you. If you're not being revived, then society's not going to get hit with the power and presence of God. So it says in 2 Chronicles 5, um, uh, uh, 7, 14, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. You notice it didn't say if the prime minister in parliament humbles himself and repents. It says, my people. Now, how many of you are God's people in this house? Now, if you can't raise your hand, I won't give an invitation at the end of the service for you to give your life to Jesus Christ. Seriously. I do that as a pastor every Sunday because you don't know who's going to be there. So I give an invitation for those who would like to give their hearts to Jesus Christ. But it begins with you. That's why it says in 1 Peter 4, 17, judgment begins in the house of God. It begins with you. And as the ecclesia, you're the church, ecclesia, the called out ones, you're God's people. As you go, so goes to society. Isn't it amazing? You're his children. You're his, you're the one thing that he restored from Genesis 1, because he created a family, Adam and Eve. He said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He wanted heaven on earth from the very beginning, and he had his family, but sin entered in. But through another family, Abraham, the redemptive purposes started to be unfolded through humanity, and then we see, of course, another family. It's not Jesus just showed up. He showed up in a context of a family, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, to redeem families. Because the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he said, I'm going to bless you so all the families of the earth. Just look at that in that passage. All the families of the earth. 
That's why I love this church, because you have a strong family value. It's all about God's family. Because the church is made up of families. I'm talking about the uh, nuclear family. And as families go, so goes the church. And as the church goes, so goes the society. It's very, very simple. If the church is not doing well, most likely the families are not doing well. I'm talking about divorce. I'm talking about the church not walking in the reverence and the fear of the Lord, not really taking the word seriously. And so what we have today is we have what we read about in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We have churches, and I'm not talking to, about you because you are here on a Sunday loving Jesus Christ. But the vast majority of those who call themselves Christians are not loving God with all their heart. They would be like the church in Laodicea. They're lukewarm. Jesus said, I would rather have you hot. If you're hot, you're on fire for me. You love me with all your heart. Or cold. If you're cold, that means you don't know me, but you will get a chance to know me. But what, where you're at right now, you're lukewarm. And he's very strong about that. You make me sick to my stomach, and I'm going to vomit you out. Read that. He says to the church in Ephesus, this one thing I have against you, you've lost your first love. Again, Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, those uh, seven churches. Only two churches he doesn't rebuke. He doesn't rebuke the church, Philadelphia, and, uh, and uh, I forget the other, Smyrna. Uh, but Sardis, he says, you think you're alive, but you're asleep. You're dead. Wow, these are very strong words. Why? Because he loves the church. He laid down his life for the church. That's what it says, that Jesus, yeah, he died for the world, but he died specifically to have his family again. It's like me. I have nine grandchildren. I love kids. I do, just in general. But there's something about your own grandkids that they're just special. Well, in the same way, he loves the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But there's something about his church, and that's why he says in Ephesians 5, 25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life. That's why it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, because he saw you. He knew that the separation with God the Father for the first time, the intimacy, because the physical pain was, was enormous, but that's not what, what killed him. He died of a broken heart. He said, my God, my God. For the first time, he doesn't call him Father, but now he's God because he took your sins upon himself and caused the separation. Your sins caused the separation with God, it says. And for the first time, he's separated from being one with the triune being, with the Godhead. God the Father, God the, the Holy Spirit. And so now he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wow. And then he said, it is finished. And die for you and for me. But the good news is that because he is God and he's also 100% man, without sin, the devil could not kill him. And then the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, that he held the certificate of debt that was against humanity and he nailed it to the cross and, the, and he wrote on that piece of paper, grace with his own blood. And then he disarmed the principalities and, pub, uh, and principalities made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through the cross. It says, this is Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. 
I'm giving a lot of verses because what I, I don't have enough time. I have two services, and he told me I'm not going to have much time, so I'm giving you a lot of quoting instead of having you look at each verse because that takes a lot. But please write down these verses because do a Bible study and look them up, you know, and just go over this. Or get the, uh, you have the um, online viewing. They can see and welcome those who are watching online. But he triumphed over them. And that's why he says all authority has now been given to me in heaven and on earth. He took back the authority man lost in the garden. Because we were called to subdue the enemy and rule with God from the very beginning. But unfortunately, Satan deceived man and man fell. And he brought death into society. And this whole world has been broken ever since. This, this planet is broken. And that's why, by the way, though, but through the death and resurrection, he's reconciled all things, including the, the world. But the problem is, is that Romans 8 says the whole earth is groaning for the manifestations of the sons of God. What does that mean? It's waiting for us as a church to get our act together. So it begins with you and me. I come from a, a state, California. I live in Los Angeles. We have more evangelicals than any other state except for Texas. We have 12 million evangelicals. Out of 39 million in California, 12 million of them. 69% if you do a survey of California is, is Christian. So six, almost 70% of California is Christian. And yet we have the most woke policies, evil policies. For example, our state senator in San Francisco, Scott Weiner, passed a bill 2020, became law, Newsom signed it, allowing the age of consent for an adult to have sex is 14 years old now, before it was 18. And his argument was is that high school kids are having sex anyway, so why should we arrest a 17-year-old having sex with a 14-year-old? He used that, but it was euphemism. It was just language just to throw people off because he was thinking about himself, a 45-year-old gay man who wants to have sex with a teenager. That's how evil things are in California. We are an abortion sanctuary state. In other words, it's illegal in a lot of the conservative states like Texas and places like Iowa, but because of Roe v. Wade was overturned on June 24th, uh, 2020. Can we thank 2022? Last year it got overturned. Can we thank God for that? Because that's California goes. So goes Canada. I mean, as the United States goes, so goes Canada. I think we can influence public policy here in Parliament and Canada. Why not? And so I, I know it seems monumental, but this is what God expects from us. He expects us to transform society, disciple nations. And so uh, what happened was is that uh, because Roe v. Wade uh, got overturned, Governor Newsom wanted to make sure that abortion would be legal in perpetuity in California, so he had this proposition called Proposition 1 to codify abortion into our state constitution. What does that mean? It means that the more, if, if people, if more than 50% vote for this in a measure, then it is law and is codified into the constitution. 60% of California said yes to legalization of abortion in perpetuity. We're talking about a state that has 15, 12 million evangelical, 69% Christian. So obviously something's wrong with the church. And, uh, and, and I, if I just can be bold, I think it's, it's not just in California. I think it's in the Western world. It's from Western society. 
And I want to submit to you, I believe it's because we've lost the fear of the Lord. There's no reverence of God. And even when I teach on the fear, pastors don't even talk about the fear of the Lord anymore because they'll use scripture. Well, God's not given us a spirit of fear, but love, power, and sound mind, and you know, perfect love cast out fear. We're not talking about the demonic spirit of fear. There's a big difference between a demonic spirit of fear that torments us versus the reverence of God. It's two different things. In fact, the kind of fear where the Bible says don't fear appears around 300 times but the fear of the Lord 200 times in the Bible. So it's a major theme that we don't. So I want to look at our Lord Jesus Christ prophesied in Isaiah chapter 11. This is our text for both services. But I want you to look at Isaiah. I love Isaiah because, you know, it's like, for example, Isaiah 61. I just quoted from Luke 4, 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Well, that's in Isaiah. Of course, it says in Isaiah 9, 6, unto a, a child is born, to your son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And so all these Messianic verses, including Isaiah 53, that he took our sickness and our pains on the cross, and by his stripes we're healed. But there's a beautiful verse, uh, passage, two verses, Isaiah uh, 11, verses 1 and 2, I want to read. And if we could shoot that up, I don't know if you have the ability to shoot up uh, scripture, but I'm reading from New American Standard, uh, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And of course, he's talking about the son of Jesse, who's David. David is the uh, grand, great-grandfather to Jesus. He is the son of David. He comes from the Davidic lineage, right? That's why... Bartimaeus calls him by the Messianic term. He says, son of David, have mercy upon me. And so this is talking about Jesus. But look at this in verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And when did that happen? It happened at his baptism. The Holy Spirit came down in a form of a dove and it rested on him. It says that very specifically that it, it, it remained on him. Now he's God, okay? Never sinned, he's 100%, but in his sovereignty, he chose to come as a man with a Holy Spirit upon him so he could set an example for you and for me. If he came fully God, fully man, as far as moving in the power, uh, apart from the, the, the Holy Spirit coming upon him, and so he did no miracles before, before he was baptized at the age of 30. Because if he functioned as God all throughout his life with the power and the, and the knowledge, like for example, he prays all night to pick the 12 apostles. If he's God, he would just know he wouldn't have to pray all night. He's doing listening prayer. He's seeking God. That's in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Just read that. And, and so we know that he, in his sovereignty, he had to be man to identify with us. He was tempted like all men, but without sin. And not because he's God, but he was man, but he had the anointing. That's why when he says, the works I do, you will do also. In John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Why? Because you now have the same spirit that was upon me. All right? I don't have time to give the whole theology of the, of, uh, of the Holy Spirit, but it's very, very important that you understand that Jesus did not have the power until the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism, all right? And of course, the heavens open, 
the Holy Spirit came upon him, and God said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. I love that verse because he had not done one miracle yet. A lot of times we are so performance-oriented, we think God's going to be pleased when we do things. He loves you the way you are. He loves you. He loves you so much he doesn't want you to stay where you are. He wants you to become more Christ-like, and he wants you to do the works of the Lord. But it's not based on performance. So Jesus receives the affirmation from the Father, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, before he begins his ministry. Are you following me? Now, this is important. Now he begins to... Uh, here we see the Spirit of the Lord's upon him, but here's the manifestation of the Spirit, and this is what's your inheritance. This is what God will give to you. Look at this. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom. How many of you could use more wisdom? Wisdom is knowing how to use your knowledge, but it's also knowledge here, because it says the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Spirit of counsel. How many of you want God to counsel you in everyday life? the decisions you have to make. I love the verse in Isaiah 30, verse 21. He's going to whisper behind you. This is the way, walk in it, whether to the right or to the left. It's the Holy Spirit that gives you counsel. It's the Holy Spirit that speaks to us. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. We're not talking about prophets. We're not talking about some, you know, super prophet. We're talking about a sheep. Now, how many of you are God's sheep? All right, if you can't raise your hand, I'm going to give you an invitation. This is for every believer. The Spirit is on you. So how many of you want more of the Holy Spirit? Come on. All right, I hope you're hungry for him. I, I, by the way, Charles Spurgeon says the reason why we have to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit, refer to Ephesians 5.18, is because We leak. We leak. Just like we have to have water all the time to stay hydrated because we leak. We perspire, we urinate, we eliminate. And so you need to be hydrated. In the same way, the metaphor is in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. It says, do not be drunk with wine, but be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. That is, the Greek, it says filled, but it's in the continual present tense in the Greek. So the accurate translation is to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. How many of you could use more Holy Spirit this morning? And we're going to pray for you to receive more of the Holy Spirit. But I love the counsel because I need counsel all the time. I want to elaborate this, on that in a moment. And then it says here, Jerua is a Hebrew word. It's, some translation says strength, but it really means power. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Acts 1.8. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And that word, witness, is the Greek word martus. We get the word martyr from. It means that you're going to be a laid-down lover for me. You're going to so love me with the Holy Spirit's power that you're willing to be my martyr for me. By the way, that's, that's the way you overcome the devil and the way you transform the world. It says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even unto death. And that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not just believe in some tenet like the Apostles' Creed. It's not intellectually just say, no, you love Jesus. You have such a revelation of what he did for you. You're willing to lay down your life. And that's why Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, how many of you want to be God's disciple? Come on. 
He said, you got to deny yourself daily, take up the cross, and follow me. What does that mean, to take up the cross? Well, anyone who took up the cross was being executed in the time of the Roman Empire. Jesus carried the cross. He was executed on the cross. It means to die, that you're willing to die for me. See, I don't understand the brand of Christianity people are preaching. It's almost like a two-step program. Accept him as your savior and try him out for 30 days. And then later on, if you're serious about this and you find something benefit about this, then make him Lord of your life. By the way, the word savior only appears 37 times in the Bible. The word Lord, 7,700 times. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He becomes your Savior when you make him Lord. Yes. And what does Lord mean? He, that means he's God. He's number one. He's the first thing in your life. The most important thing. You should have no other gods before me. And we would say it this way in the Jesus people movement. When I got saved in 1973, we would say Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. And so what I feel is that the reason why the church is so weak is because we have a lot of counterfeit converts. We have a lot of people think they're saved, but they're really not saved. They haven't really made Jesus Lord. They're not serious. They're just playing religion. They're just going to service to placate their conscience and check off their good deed list that I went to service. And they could even be giving. And again, it's part of their checklist. It's part of their habit of discipline that they feel in order for them to be a good person. But here's the thing. You can never be good enough. Your works is nothing but filthy rags in my sight, the Bible says. It's by grace you're saved through faith. And the way you receive grace is you humble yourself. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. You humble yourself and say, God, apart from you, I can do absolutely nothing. I can't save myself. That's humanism. If you're trying to save yourself, it's humanism. It's your effort. You're being God yourself. And that's the problem with what happened with Satan. He wanted to be God. He got cast out because of his prayer. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. They wanted to be like God. They wanted salvation on their own merits and how they could do it by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they became evil as a result of that. It's by grace. It's his power that transformed. But what he's looking for is humility. He's willing, that you're willing to just give all in, be all in for Jesus Christ. This is serious. We're talking about the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God who created the universe. He is God and we're not. And the way we become followers of him, we never become God. But followers of him is that he wants your whole life. He doesn't just want part of your life. He just doesn't want you on Sunday. Are you kidding me? You're the ecclesia 24-7. You're the church. You're to love him with all your heart, all day, every day. And even that is grace. That's why it says in 1 John 4, uh, 18, we love because he first loved us. 18 and 19, we love because he first loved us. So let's continue with Isaiah 11 too. He says the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge, and here's the key, and the fear of the Lord. Look at this. Jesus will delight in the fear of the Lord. This is all about Jesus. This is the key, and what's missing is uh, there's no reverence for God. When I say fear, I'm not talking about the spirit, demonic spirit of fear. We're talking about the awe of God. 
I was just at a conference in Red Deer, and Bobby Connors was there. The first night he spoke is that he gets what's called the shepherd's ride. The Lord speaks to him on the Day of Atonement every year. And he said, this is going to be a year of the reverence of God, the all of God that's coming back to the church. And uh, he didn't know what I was going to preach on. I, was going to, I preached on this message, the fear of the Lord. I feel that we're in this extraordinary time where he's reviving the church, but revival begins with the church, begins with us. And I feel prophetically what he's doing is that he's restoring the fear of the Lord. It's really interesting because we've had significant people die on the 8th. Jack Hayford, my mentor, died on January the 8th. Pat Robertson, how many have heard of Pat Robertson? He just died on June the 8th. And the reason why I'm saying eight is because, biblically speaking, eight is the number of new beginnings. And there's someone else who died on the eighth that uh, we don't really think about because she's not our queen, but Queen Elizabeth died on September the 8th at the age of 96. And she was queen for 70 years. I don't know about you, but I didn't know when she was going to die. It's like Charles is waiting as Prince Charles forever, you know, but finally... Uh, he is now King Charles. So I was in Texas with our HRM church in Austin. I was with this, um, one of our pastors. And I, I was there when Queen Elizabeth passed away. I said, what's the Lord saying to you with that passing of, the, of Queen Elizabeth? And, and uh, Sylvia said to me, uh, the Richard's wife said, uh, it's Isaiah 6, 1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And I saw seraphims with six wings, two covering their face, two covering their feet, the other two flying. And they were saying, and we sang this prophetically, holy, holy, holy. Again, the triune being, holy. It's a Lord God Almighty, the whole Earth is filled with his glory. He's prophesying that there's going to be a revival before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Global revival. But the reaction to that is, woe is me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. Because when you see the holiness of God, the fear of God hits you, and you realize I am a sinner, and I live among people with unclean lips. But here's the good news. A seraphim took a hot coal, put it on his tongue, and says, your sins are forgiven. And that's the good news. We're all sinners. And the wages of sin is death, a separation with God the Father. But I really felt like the Lord was saying, I'm bringing the church and new beginnings. It's number eight again. September 8th, she passed away into a revelation of my fear, because here's the reason why I'm ready to release my glory, my power, but unless you have an understanding of my fear, I, you will not see the power. It's interesting, it's the spirit of power and the fear of the Lord. How many of you want more power, the more of the supernatural in Canada? Come on, we all do. Turn with me to Acts chapter five, because we see the fear hitting the early church. And I'm going to close with this because I'm going to prophesy this is what you're going to be seeing in the streets of Calgary and Canada. The, the, the context of this is Ananias and Sapphira 
they lied to the Holy Spirit. They had land that they sold. And uh, they, they could do whatever they wanted to do because God holds each one of us as stewards. It's God's. It belongs to him. But we're responsible how to steward and how to give and what we're to save. But they lied to the Holy Spirit because they kept some of the proceeds to themselves, pretending like they sold everything. And they're giving everything to the church. And judgment comes upon them. And one of the things that's a lie in the pit of, from the pit of hell that God still doesn't judge in the new covenant. And the truth is that all of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every believer, I'm not talking about the day of judgment, we're going to be in heaven, okay? But when this thing, nonsense about there's no judgment in the New Testament is not being biblical. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let me give you a new, ver, new Testament verse. Verse 10 that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will get our rewards, whether good or bad, based on what we did on earth. Now, this is important because the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, for those who want a New Testament verse on the fear of the Lord, it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God's at work within you, both to want to work for his pleasure. It's all grace, but you're still responsible to tremble at his word. This is the person I esteem, God says. Someone who's humble and trembles at my word. All right, so we're talking about receiving the restoration. But look what happened in verse 11 of Acts 5. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. So it's the church that's moving in the fear of the Lord now. This is New Testament, Acts chapter 5, verse 11, because of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. But look at that in the next verse. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were with one accord in Solomon's portico. That Greek word homothumadon is really important. They're all united. The fear brought them together into one community, one like-mindedness. Mind, uh, like and look at this, it hit the city, but none of them dared to associate with them. However, people held them in high esteem. And of course, people were being added, but there was a terror among the unbelievers. But look at verse 14, and all the more believers, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitude of men and women were constantly added to their number. So this, this dichotomy is going on. People are afraid, but yet people know this is the truth and they're being drawn to the truth and they're giving their hearts to the Lord. I love this in verse 15. To such an extent that even they even carried the sick out in the streets, laid them on the cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them and they were being healed. Read the rest. How many of you like to see that in Calgary? The question is, why aren't we seeing it? If Jesus said, the works I do, you will do, and greater works than these will you do in my name. Is it possible because we have so watered down the gospel that the power has been watered down? Is it possible the standard of the way we should live as Christians has been so watered down, become so lukewarm that he can't entrust you with the power because the power would corrupt you. You will get so proud and arrogant because here's what the Bible says, the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 8, 13, is to hate evil, Pride, arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, and that evil is pride, arrogance. If I gave you that kind of power and you were the next, you know, Catherine Coleman, how would you handle that? 
do you have the humility to walk in that kind of trembling fear, realizing he gets all the glory? It's not about you. How many of you know it's not about you, period? It's all about Jesus and his kingdom. We're just servants. We should be forever grateful that he died for our sins, but he says, not only are you saved, but you're my son, you're my daughter. You're seated with me in heaven places. I want you to rule and reign with me. And yet you compromise. You watch pornography. You steal in your taxes. You exaggerate. You lie. You do whatever to make yourself look good. I want to submit something to you. When you fear God, you don't fear people. The fear of man is a snare, the Bible says in Proverbs 29, 25. But when you fear God, you don't care about what people say. I sued Governor Newsom because I fear God, not because I fear what's going to happen. I lost church members. One of my pastors resigned. When we opened up, when everyone was locking down, I said, we're going to open up because I fear God, not men. I've never, I've made a commitment when I became a pastor. If I'm trying to please man, Galatians 1.10, I'm not a servant of Christ. Are you hear what I'm saying? And so once you start fearing the Lord, you love what he loves and you hate what he hates. You hate evil in society. And all of a sudden you, you speak out. I don't, I've never compromised in speaking out against same-sex marriage or abortion. Why? Because I fear God. But pastors become so woke, they won't speak out because they're afraid they're going to offend people. It's almost like as a nation, we just fear men. We want to just be nice and kind and tolerant, but that's not love. Yes, love is patient, love is kind, but it goes on in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice with evil, but rejoices with the truth. Where is the truth in the church? We should be the bastion for truth because he is the way, the truth, and the life, and the word of God is true. So here's what I want us to do. I feel we're in a Joshua 3, 5 moment. And what's that? He says, consecrate yourself today because tomorrow I'm going to do amazing things. I believe that God wants to bring revival with a capital R to Canada. I believe that God wants to use you as an apostolic center that's going to kick in the gates of hell and bring about transformation. But there needs to be a consecration where we say we're all in. We're going to stop bending our knees to some selfish sin, watching pornography or, you know, sleeping around or whatever the issue may be. It's amazing how much compromise. In California, the church, I'm talking about evangelists, they're smoking pot because it's legal. And they said, we're under the law. Romans 13, if, if it's legal with the governor, it's legal with me. And sick, it's so sad. Because I used to be a drug addict. I know what pot does. I mean, the kind of pot I had, you would hallucinate. It would be so demonic, you would get suicidal and depression. You always crash when you take drugs. And so the number one killer it's drug overdose. I mean, it's like the spirit of stupid. In Oregon, they legalize all the hard drugs. Heroin, fentanyl, cocaine, it's all legal. Because they said, we don't want to just arrest all these people. And, and the way we're going to defund the police is by making it legal. And what's happened is that suicide and overdose has skyrocketed. Of course, it's just common sense. If you make it legal, it's just gonna, there's no restraint now. The devil's working overtime to steal, kill, and destroy. But God's looking for a remnant. Who's not, they're not going to bow their knees to some cheap thrill, but they're going to bow their knees to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's all stand up. 
I want us to pray the way David prayed in Psalm 139. He says, search me, O God, and know me. Try me and see if there be any evil way within me and lead me in the everlasting way. If the Holy Spirit has convicted you and you realize I have not walked in the fear and reverence of God, because he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says, you're my friend. John 15, verse 14, if you do what I command you to do. Read that. We just talk about, oh, well, I'm intimate. He's my Abba Daddy. We're friends of Jesus, and we continue to live in sin. He says, no, you're my friend if you do what I command you to do. If the Holy Spirit has convicted you. I want a fresh consecration. I'm going to ask you to come out of your seat and come up to here. I'm not going to have you close your eyes or anything. You just come on right down and say, I'm going to reconsecrate, rededicate my life to Jesus Christ. Come on up here. And let's get right with God. And don't let the fear of man, don't let your pride get in the way because again, you're playing into, again, your own pride. But if the Lord has convicted you, you humble yourself and you come on out of your seat and just say, God, I'm going to give my heart to you. I'm all in. I'm not going to play games. I'm not going to play church. I'm going to be real with you. I'm going to be honest. And the first step is being honest with God and just saying, you know what? I've been living a, a lukewarm compromise. I've been asleep as a church. I've lost my first love. Go away. So I'm going to invite you to come a little closer to the front. Here's some people coming up the aisle, pressing a little, little bit more. Get your heart ready to receive from Jesus, to mark this moment. And Shea prays for you and prays with you. God's doing something powerful. I just said, I heard this verse that, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Amen. But there's a purity of heart that God is going after right in this house, right today, right in this service. Those of you online are sensing it too. So this is a moment of consecration. It is a moment of saying, Lord, I want you to fully inhabit my heart, my soul, my life. I want capital L, Lord, over my existence. God is so good. I want to just commend those who have humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God. He gives grace to the humble. There's so much grace upon you, those who are up here. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I want you to pray this prayer with me and just repeat after me, but make this your prayer. Just say, Heavenly Father, repeat it. I want you to confess because there's something powerful about declaring with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord. Okay, so repeat after me. Just say, Heavenly Father, I humble myself before you. Forgive me, Lord, for all my sins, for my compromise, my selfishness, I repent. Thank you that you died for me. You gave your all for me, and I give you all of me. I surrender all that I am, all that I have. Fill me with your spirit. Give me your grace to love you with all my heart, to obey you, and to follow you all the days of my life. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to just pray right now that the Holy Spirit would just come upon you. And I want you to receive by faith the Holy Spirit. It says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? 
And I want to just give another verse in the Old Testament that Second Chronicles 16:9 says, "The eyes of the Lord look throughout the whole earth, that He may show His power to those whose hearts are completely His." It's not like God's holding back; He's waiting for you. And as you consecrated yourself today, He's going to manifest His power. It's the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of knowledge and counsel, the Spirit of power. And the fear of the Lord, because you're delighting now. Now, Father, I now pray a blessing over each person here. Take us deeper in the fear of the Lord. Help us to understand the fear of the Lord. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. In the days ahead, just show us how to tremble at your word and tremble in your presence, and to be radically obedient to your commandments, to love your commands. In Jesus' mighty name. Now put your hand on the shoulder of the person next to you, because I want you to just—you guys all have the power. Now receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Just receive. Let the power of God come. Let the power of God come. More, Lord, more of Your Spirit. Let it come. The Spirit's all over you. Just receive more. I just feel His pleasure. I feel like the Lord saying, "This is my." Beloved daughter, with whom I'm well pleased. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to prophesy to you. You're going to hear the voice of God like never before, because He gives His counsel to those who fear Him. He says the secret things belong to those who fear Him. Psalm 25. Read Psalm 25. He's going to start revealing Himself to you. And it's going to be like on a daily basis, these daily encounters. And here's what the Bible says: steps of a righteous man, righteous woman, are ordered by the Lord. He's going to order your steps. You're going to see amazing things in the days ahead. That's why Joshua said, "Consecrate yourself, for tomorrow I'm going to do amazing things." And so, just receive His love, His grace. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We give you praise and glory and honor. Thank you for being obeying the Holy Spirit because you came because the Holy Spirit prompted you, and I just want to commend you for obeying the Holy Spirit. Let me just go right here. Thank you, Holy Spirit. God loves you. We love you. We're for you. And by the way, I know there are others who wanted to be up here, but you know, again, just the fear of man, whatever issues. But God sees your heart, and He's going to give you another opportunity, because He said, "If you accept Me before men, I'll accept you before My Father in heaven. If you deny Me before men, then I'll deny you before My Father in heaven." Those, those are strong words. But again, I'm just giving you Bible verses. These are not things that I made up, but these are things that Jesus said. We're talking about Jesus, not just the Bible, but Jesus Himself said, "If you accept Me before men, I'll accept you before My Father." In heaven, so Father, I just thank you so much for the grace that's upon, and I really believe, Lord, this is going to be the beginning. And I'm prophesying, those who are up here, you will never be the same. This is the beginning of a real radical shift in your life, in your destiny, and it's going to be surely goodness and mercy is going to follow you all the days of his life, of your life. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Amen. Let's give Jesus praise.
Can you just, uh, just declare this with me? Whom the Son has set free, he is free indeed. So blessings on you as you soak in the presence of Jesus. You're welcome to stay for that uh, time of soaking. And uh, some of you may want to stay for second service and just drink some more. But we bless you in the name of the Lord. Have a great week, and we'll see you soon.